Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. I'm Patrick Harrington from Mildly Geeky in Boston. I'm Marian Nulevant here in Portland, Oregon. And I'm Matt Stein from Working Concept in Seattle. And today we're talking with Rich Harris from the New York Times. How are you doing, Rich? I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you? Doing good. And we, we all want to know, like, <laughs> what, what borough is that accent from in New York? What's, <laughs> what's the deal with that? I, I hail originally from Old York in the UK. Oh, the original uh, York. The, the original and still the best. Nice. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you about that at all. So we wanted to have you on here because I had uh, seen some videos on a little thing that you've got going on called Svelte, and I thought it was incredibly intriguing. Very intriguing. So if you were out harvesting Indian swiftlet nests in the Gomatong Caves in Sabah, Malaysia, <laughs> you're up there, you're climbing up the ladder, you're trying to get at the nest so you can make the bird nest soup, and someone climbs up, scaling up the side of the cave next to you and says, hey, what is this uh, svelte thing? Like, wh- what would you tell them? Uh, I'd, I'd probably tell them to climb down because it's dangerous what we're doing. <laughs> but then I would, oh man, do, do you know what? I, I really should get better at answering this question because it's a pretty obvious one to have at the beginning of the podcast. You got to do it quick because these bird's nests are rare and they're precious. And if you don't do it quick, someone's going to come up there and snatch that bird, ne- bird nest right out from under you. Pretty okay, typical so, question. So, <laughs> Svelte is it's a UI framework. Um, if you've used things like React and Vue, then you're familiar with the concept of a UI framework. You build your application out of a set of components and they have their own life cycle and all the rest of it. But it has a, a, a key difference, which is that rather than being a blob of JavaScript that interprets your application code at runtime, it compiles it during your build step into highly efficient JavaScript that um, updates the DOM directly. So what does that mean? So if we're used to these web frameworks like React and Vue, there's always a tension in the framework in terms of like how much is it going to provide and then how big is it going to get, right? So that those two things that, that you identified, the, the file size and the feature set, they are in direct conflict most of the time in, in libraries in general, but particularly in UI frameworks. And that is not the case with Svelte because if you're using a feature, then it, it gets represented in the code that gets generated. If you're not using that feature, then because we're a compiler, we can just omit that feature altogether. So this makes me want to say that it's some form of framework tree shaking, but it, I think it's something more sophisticated than that. There is a little bit of that. Yes, there's, there's this internal library of uh, functions that Svelte needs to do its job, and it will only import the functions that it needs and the rest will get tree shaken away but you're right it is a little bit more complex than that what the generated code does is it basically interacts with the dom directly like you will have an update function that says if change.name then h1.textContent equals hello current.name uh, instead of you recreating a virtual representation of your entire application and then giving that to the framework to reconcile with what's already on the screen. So there's no shadow DOM. It's actually generated, like we might, if we had infinite time, we might handwrite kind of what it's generating, where it would go in and would, instead of this shadow DOM and diffing and all that kind of stuff, it just has JavaScript that says, you know, find this H1 and change the inner HTML. That's the goal. If you think back to when you first started writing JavaScript, particularly if you started writing JavaScript in the pre-component era, then you know you might have been using jQuery or something like that. But effectively, you would have been saying, you know, when this event happens, change this piece of DOM, and that is a very direct and very efficient way to go about bringing an application up to date, synchronizing the 
the view with the state, but it's also very, very difficult to get right because the number of possible paths through your code gets exponentially large as your application grows in, in size. Uh, and so while it's a very good user experience because you're able to do things in a very performant way, it's a terrible developer experience because you have to oh. try and keep all of this state in your head at one time. Yeah, you know what the worst part about the developer experience with jQuery is? It's when you inherit someone else's project. <laughs> and <laughs> right. you look at all of the just crap, like it looks like someone just vomited jQuery all over everything, you know? It's not like old totally. go-to code, but it's it's not far from it. Right. So this is really cool. So it, it, it sounds like it's, and we're all used to having preprocessors and bundlers and all that kind of stuff. And it, your background, like you're a graphics editor at the New York Times, and then you went to build Rollup? Like, how did that happen? The chronology is the other way around. Um, okay. But yeah, I, my, my background is in journalism. I've, I've been in journalism my entire adult career. Uh, a few years ago, I, I left my, my job at a publishing company in London and went to The Guardian to become an interactive journalist there. And I, I became sort of aware that the tools that we were using to build these pieces of interactive journalism weren't particularly good. You know, there, there were big problems with the way that we went about the problem of updating the DOM to bring it into sync with some, some state, particularly given that when you're producing these heavily interactive pieces, there tends to be a lot of different ways that the state can get changed. And it, it gets pretty difficult to manage. And you know, we were doing a lot of jQuery spaghetti code and, and that kind of thing. This is actually really irritating, Rich, because it, it sound, sounds like you're way better at your accidental side hobby than I am at my actual career. Like you're just you're doing all this stuff like as an an incidental thing to your main profession as working in journalism. That's insane. I mean, I, I think I, I maybe just have a lower tolerance for you know t tools that don't let me do my job as fast as as I want to do it you know i'm a very impatient person and i guess that's part of it but also i you know the news industry actually has quite a proud tradition of of nurturing tools that then get used much more widely d3 is a brilliant example that came out mm. of the new york times graphics department right underscore coffee script backbone all by jeremy Ashkenes, also from new york times graphics department django a very popular python framework that kind of has a, its its origins in the news business and I think it's because you know the nature of the, of the job is that you tend to have to build things in a very short space of time. You know, a, a lot of us we don't have deep backgrounds in computer science or anything like that. So we need tools that are very easy to use, very flexible, and it sort of forces a particular style of of development that that turns out to be beneficial in all kinds of different contexts. That's really interesting because one of the things I saw recently scroll by in my Twitter feed is that Google was uh, accepting applications for uh, a senior developer liaison for their uh, their media publishing group, I think they called it. Mm. And specifically, they're looking for someone uh, essentially to make WordPress not suck. <laughs> right. <laughs> like So they're developing like these whole, just, I mean, Obviously, just because so much of the web just uses WordPress, but they're building, Google is actually building like oh, this whole uh, series of frameworks and plugins and that kind of stuff, trying to bring WordPress into the modern age. So it's really kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you'll have organizations like the New York Times that are on the, the forefront of this. And then you'll also have this just vast body of probably smaller independent publishers that are using 
what a lot of people would be considered kind of dated, you know, WordPressy kind of ways of doing things. But in any event, let's get back to, to Svelte. So it's called the Disappearing Framework. And when I first read that, I thought it was like a magic trick, like you're going to saw a lady in half or, or something like that. <laughs> but what you're effectively saying is that the framework compiles down to just your whatever code is needed to render your templates and then the Svelte glue code to kind of make all the magic happen? Yeah, we've actually retired that tagline for version three. Um, it's now cybernetically enhanced web apps. But for oh. a long time, it was the magical disappearing framework. And yeah, the thinking was was exactly what, what you say. It's that a, a framework, traditionally, we've thought of a framework as being kind of like a library, but a bit more, right? It's some, it's some code that that you run alongside your application. And the, the thinking behind that tagline was that actually that's not what a framework is. That's not the value that a framework provides. A framework is a set of concepts that you can use to think about application development rather than a set of you know functions that you can that you can run. It's the structure that it provides that makes it a valuable thing. And so given that, maybe the framework doesn't need to exist in the form of code. Maybe it can exist as a tool, right? That takes your declarative code and turns it into something else. Well, this whole thing sounds awesome because that tension I mentioned before between the size of the framework and the features it provides, like that just goes away. Like you could build just rich libraries as rich as you wanted to. And then Svelte will will just pick and choose the pieces you actually use and you just don't have to worry about it anymore, right? Yeah, it means that our decision about whether to include a feature or not is driven by whether or not it makes the framework too complicated for a human being to understand and use. We mm. never have to consider, oh, is this going to be a feature that only a few people use and everyone else has to pay for it in the form of larger bundles? Yeah, and that kind of must be pretty liberating because if you wanted to go in there and write a package that did, you know, I don't know, like an area I would be interested in would be SEO, for instance, because I've got a lot of experience doing that. I could just go in and, and build it. And if you don't want to use it, fine, like you don't have to. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to bloat the final app, which is, it's quite different than the methodology that React and, and Vue and some of these other frameworks like Angular, et cetera, use. I mean, yeah, they try to modularize things, but they're in kind of big chunks. And it sounds like if you use Svelte, it's, it, it's super fine grain. It is. And it, it means that we can have features that are pretty difficult to do in user land. Mm. Uh, a good example would be, um, element bindings, right? We have this system where you can you can have local two-way binding inside a component. You can have some piece of state that is bound to a property of some DOM element. For example, you might have a property that is bound to the current time of some video element. And when the video is playing, Svelte will add a request animation frame loop that is just constantly querying that current time. And the reason that it uses request animation frame instead of the built-in time update event is that the time update event only fires like 10 times a second, let's say, whereas request animation frame gives you 60 frames a second. So you can mm. build, you can very easily build all of this custom um, interface around media players that would be pretty difficult to do from outside the framework. Another good example, we have a pretty strong support for transitions and animations and combinations of transitions and animations that would be pretty difficult if you didn't have access to the, the framework's scheduler, which we do. Mm. Yeah, that's really neat. And I, my understanding is that one of the things that you added 
is and I, I for, forgive me, I forget the name of it, but you added some kind of a uh, a token that you can as- essentially permanently assign a relationship between things. So if you had a, a line of JavaScript that said b equals a plus one, right? You would put this token in front of it, and instead of it evaluating it once, it binds it forever so that b is always equal to a plus one. So if you change a somewhere else, b is automatically going to be updated. Help me out with that concept and the name of it, because I forget the name. So the, the the idea here is that we are making JavaScript into a reactive programming language. Mm. To some degree, all the user interface frameworks are is an implementation of reactive programming in some way. And what I mean by that is that you have some values represented somehow in your application, and your view is a function of that state. And when a value changes, the state flows through to the view and the view automatically updates. That, that is what we mean by, by reactivity. And traditionally, the way that, that that is handled is with some kind of API. In React, you have the use state hook. In Angular, you, you might use RxJS primitives uh, and things like that. Because well, the thing I don't understand about React is if, if you have to call this method, how is that reactive? Like <laughs> It seems like well, it, I have it, to call it. Not. It's actually not. React is not a reactive framework. It's a, it's a kind of a confusing name. And I think everyone basically acknowledges that. It's not sort of a controversial or pejorative thing. It's sort of hues to the spirit of reactive programming, but it doesn't have what I consider to be the essential feature of reactive programming, which is that it's the values themselves that have the power to update your application. In React, your application is effectively a black box, but in a true reactive framework, it's when those values change that the framework knows what to do. It, it can sort of trace which values are changing and thereby do more efficient and, and granular updates. So you're sort so of adding this as a language level feature, essentially. Kind of, yes. And, and the way that we've done that is we've hijacked an obscure piece of JavaScript syntax called the label. Mm-hmm. And labels are kind of like the, uh, they're kind of like go-tos, right? If you have a for loop or a while loop, then inside that loop, you can have break foo or continue foo. And foo is a label. Foo colon statement. If you then break foo, you go back to to where that label um, is is placed. And no one ever does this. I've never seen it in code in the wild. And it brings me back to basic. (laughs) Right. It it, it is. It's exactly like, you know, go to programming. So no one uses this. And Outside of the concept context of a loop, it doesn't have any meaning anyway. So we sort of saw this and said, you know what, this could be put to better use. It's a little bit cheeky. We're abusing the language. But what it allows us to do is take any statement of JavaScript, any single line, put a dollar in front of it, and then it becomes a reactive statement. And what did you so, call that? You had a name for that thing. I forgot what it was. We call it, a, we call it literally just a reactive statement. Or oh, if... Okay. If it's if it's if the statement is an assignment in the case of you know b equals a plus one if we turn that into dollar colon b equals a plus one then we call that a reactive declaration b is now bound to the value of, of a plus one Rich, some, Rich, some people call that a destiny operator um, other people have different names for it but were these ideas that you were just kind of kicking around or was there a distinctive point where you decided okay I'm looking at these tools that are out there I'm seeing the limitations I'm kind of frustrated and impatient did you go just okay naturally I will be creating uh, a new framework it will be called Svelte and let's continue or did you kind of like toy around different ideas and they eventually decided 
you know, that you would create this new thing or how did that happen? It's been a pretty long road, actually. When I, when I first started out writing JavaScript, I was very frustrated about the difficulty of managing all of my state and updating the DOM in a predictable and performant way because, you know, A, I was wet behind the ears and not very good at programming, and B, we were using stuff like jQuery, which, you know, for all its many wonderful qualities, it's not great at managing really complex changes of state in a in a large application with lots of interactivity and so i started kind of fantasizing even at that very early stage about what a tool for doing this stuff right would look like and mm. the conclusion that i settled on fairly early on was that most of the time what we're doing when we're building interactive stuff is we're trying to make the dom look like some template right and this was around the time when People were using templating languages like Mustache.js and Hogan and, and a lot of other libraries whose names are all somehow related to mustaches, like <laughs> Stelic.js and you know all of these other things. I'm pretty sure there was like a, a Burt Reynolds.js. Sure. Uh, and they were they were not good for the kind of work that that we were doing and I was doing at the Guardian because when you have a lot of state changing over a very quick period of time it's pretty inefficient to re-render your entire application as a string and then just kind of dump it into the DOM because the old DOM needs to get removed and then the new DOM needs to get put in and there's like it's terrible for garbage collection and all of this stuff. So I started a project back then called Reactive, which was kind of like if you took mustache.js and made it instead of a, a thing that like a function that you would call it and it would give you a new string representing some new HTML, you would call it once and then that would give you an object that you could provide with new state and it would surgically update the real DOM. Hmm. And it seemed to work pretty well. And I was building stuff with it and having a lot of fun with it. And then React came out in 2013 and I suddenly realized that I was not particularly original, that actually a lot of people were thinking along very similar lines. I kept at it because... I kind of liked the style. Uh, it had scope styles back when that wasn't really a thing. It had server-side rendering back when that wasn't really a thing. It had first-class SVG support because that's very important in the world of animated data viz. Yeah, for um, sure. And so, you know, we, we I, I kept developing that. It, it built up a little bit of a community around it. We were sort of the first framework to have single file components and all these sorts of things. But eventually I became a little bit burnt out and a little bit frustrated with the, the way that, you know, it was, it was quite, quite far from what I envisaged as being the ideal framework at, at this point. And well, around that time, if, if you're doing, if you write anything, the first thing that you write teaches you how to do it correctly, right? So what you should do, what everyone does is you throw out the first thing you did and then you do it again, right? Th that's basically it. And it, that was a, a slow process. Like it wasn't like I could just rip the bandaid off because you know, there were people using this thing. There were people building production apps with Reactive. It was used by, I mean, I, I want to say like Delta Airlines and the NFL. What I actually mean is contractors who had built sites for Delta and NFL. Right. And Amazon and, and, and a few other like you know, pretty, pretty big names that people have heard of are actually using this thing. And it was difficult to come along and say, actually, you know what? We, we've all done it wrong. We need to stop and, and start again with this new thing. Sorry, um, guys. <laughs> so there, there, was, there was no possibility of, gradually transitioning reactive into the framework that i wanted to build so i just started from scratch back in 2016 started a new framework uh, a, a colleague at the guardian came up with a name and you know i, I just started 
writing code to see if it if it would work. Um, yeah, that that was that was the whole thing. That was the the beginning of of the Svelte journey. Was oh hey look, we can have a similar development experience to what we get with Reactive, but we can have these applications that are much much smaller and orders of magnitude faster. When I watched your presentation, Rich, I had a flashback. I had this major flashback. So, and you might appreciate this being in the the data viz world. So. I was actually authoring games back when computers were super slow, right? Mm. And so, you know, a typical, we're talking like back in the the Mac 2SI days, you know, like right. the first color Macs, like a long time ago, right? And everything was really slow. Video cards were especially slow because you had to go over a separate bus to read or write from the, the video RAM, right? And so a typical way you would draw a sprite on the screen would be you'd have an image and you'd combine it with a mask and then you would draw that combined thing to the screen, right? So you could have an irregular shape, okay? And that was slow because you had to do, you had to combine the mask, you had to read from the video RAM, you had to mask everything out, you had to then combine the the sprite in, and then you had to dump it back into video RAM, and that was kind of slow. And similar to you, I was trying to do stuff that was more performant because I just, it was what I needed to do in order to make this game work. And what I was experimenting with and what some other people were experimenting with is the idea of compiled sprites. So what it would actually do is it would take the image and a mask and it would go through and it would turn the image into actual assembly code, right? right? Where, where it would jump ahead. If, if there were five empty pixels, it would add five to the pointer, right? Mm. And if, if there was actual data, then it would, it would basically do a, the assembly equivalent of move this actual hard-coded value to this address, you know? Um, and in that way, what, what happened is the sprites, they ended up being smaller and they were also way more performant because each sprite knew exactly how to draw itself and everything just worked. And I had a, a major flashback when I was looking at what you were doing with Svelte and I'm like, man, that's real similar to the compiled sprites that we're doing, you know, many, many years ago. That's very cool. And, you know, I think we can probably learn an awful lot of tricks as web developers from the game industry. Yeah. Yeah, because efficiency is hugely important, you know, because they're always, that's one of the major things. They're always like pushing the envelope in terms of, uh, you know, what they can possibly do. But I thought it was really neat because it conceptually, it's the same thing. You're like, oh, this app, uh, we know how it, it, we can include just the code that it needs so it can just run itself. And the same way we can have a sprite that it can just compile down into something that it knows how to draw itself. And it makes complete sense that this would be faster and more efficient and that's why i'm super super interested in in svelte honestly i'm surprised that we weren't doing this sort of thing much sooner mm. well you kind of need to have that compile step for sure uh, my it's it's true that sorry go ahead uh, my, one of my questions is that it seems like that you know it's a javascript framework and that the output of the thing is javascript that gets sent to the browser but it's a compile time sort of thing so svelte itself could be written in JavaScript. It could be written in something else, in a way. Yes. So what's it? It's written currently in? written in TypeScript. Ah. Hmm. It's it's written in TypeScript, um, which is ironic because our support for TypeScript is currently quite lacking. It's one of the big <laughs> sort of to, to do's. Um, but we've we kind of idly wondered about writing the compiler in Rust, for example. There you go. Because that'd be pretty cool. Maybe that would be faster. But <laughs> I don't know Rust, so. I wouldn't be the person to do that. I've been learning Rust lately, and if you like strongly typed languages, you know, it's fine. It's, I don't know. But I I think that it's really 
not going to matter that much. I would imagine that your TypeScript engine is probably quick enough. Um, and what is it? Is it just something that you know you can spin up like a Webpack dev server and some kind of a Svelte compiler can be sitting in the background watching for changes and rebuilding stuff? It's just a plugin that you can add to whatever bundle you're using. If you're using okay. Webpack, then you would use Svelte Loader. If you're using Rollup, you'd use Rollup Plugin Svelte and, and so on. And each of those plugins just calls the underlying compiler and just feeds it. Each, um, each component, as it's being processed by the bundler, gets sent off the compiler, turns it into some raw JavaScript, and then it gets sent back to the bundler. Mm. And Svelte 3 recently shipped, right? It did, yes. Is this being used live in, in any stuff? Uh, so we've used it for a, a couple of things at the New York Times. There, there definitely are people using it. If you go to our website, svelte.dev, there's a, there's a list of people who are using it in production there. Probably quite an incomplete list. But yeah, pe- people are using it. It's not like a, a mainstream thing by any stretch. It's like a tiny, tiny minnow compared to frameworks like React and Vue and Angular and all those things. But people are using it. And I'm, I'm it feels like it should yeah, be. I'm surprised it hasn't caught on more. I mean, it, really, anyone who's listening, I think, should go to svelte.dev and click through the tutorial that, A, it's really written nicely. I just like things that are approachable and speak to you pretty easily and let you kind of do the coding and, and learn about it as you go. But the syntax is so simple. It, it's really just simple little blobs of JavaScript that, you know, if you can read even, not even complex ES6, you're going to get it. And, and you're going to get going really quickly. And compared to React or even Vue, it, it's just a very simple syntax to get going. Yeah. I, I mean, what's the obstacle to it being deployed? It, does it need to be part i mean is it the fact that you then need to bring it into something like webpack or roll up or anything like that can it take on like just a small bit of functionality on a site the way that view can how does that work it can definitely take on a small bit of functionality you can use it to incrementally build out bits of your app and you can you can compile directly to web components if if that's your jam Um, Mm -hmm. so you know you you can use felt components inside any other framework Um, Mm. and, and that's a slightly unique attribute because normally, if you have a framework and then you compile it to some kind of a web component, for example, you know, if you if you have a thing that's written in Vue and you turn that into a web component, that web component still has a dependency on Vue. But because Svelte sort of compiles itself away, it's this self-contained portable thing. Um, so yes, you, you definitely can do that. The the obstacles, I guess, are probably at this stage more social than anything. You, you know, if if you have a production React app and it's it, and it's working, then there's absolutely no need to rewrite it. And so my observation of these things has been that it takes a really long time for something to go mainstream. People still talk about Vue as being like the new kid on the block. I was there at the beginning of Vue back in 2013. (laughs) It's it's not that new. It just took a really long time before a large mass of people suddenly started taking it very seriously. Um, I think that was probably in like 2015, 2016. Yeah. And then it, that was like the elbow of this exponential curve upwards. So it, it's all kind of panning out more or less as I would expect. Mm-hmm. And then tell, I mean, can we talk about Sapper as well on this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sapper is, so Svelte is a component framework like React. Mm-hmm. Sapper is an application framework that's more like Gatsby or Next or if you're using Vue, Nuxt. What I mean by that is it gives you, as opposed to just the compiler that you need to turn a single component that may or may not contain other components into some JavaScript, it gives you the full range of things that you need to build an application. 
it gives you a router, which is a little bit different to other routers. It gives you a build config, either Webpack or Rollup, so that you get code splitting and all of that stuff. It gives you server-side rendering, and it gives you a, a command line interface that pulls it all together. So that is sort of our, our, our official answer to the question, how do I build a large application? Maybe not a large app, just a, an application with Svelte. Yeah, and, and for something like that, I know you know Gatsby, it works well. We This podcast is loosely based around craft CMS, but it works well with a CMS because it's going to go through and build out every possible route you have. Is that something Sapper can do? Can it respond to really routes that it may not know about at build time? Or how does, how does that work? Yeah, it has two modes. It can run as a node server, which means that if you go to uh, an arbitrary route, then it, it will handle that route and it will it, the router will, will find the Svelte component that matches that route. And if, it's, if it has a dynamic part, like say it's slash blog slash my cool post, then it, it will, if the file is called slash blog slash square brackets slug dot svelte, then that means that the page will be rendered with a params object, which has a slug property, which is set to my cool post. And so then you can fetch the data that you need to render it and then serve that to the user. The alternative mode is a purely static file mode, which is where it gets a bit more like Gatsby. Mm -hmm. It will, at build time, it knows all of the possible routes that you could hit just by starting at the root and crawling any anchor tags that it sees. And it will, by doing that, so say you have a blog index page which has links to those individual blog posts, it will then request those, it will request any data that it needs to render those, and it will turn those into static files, HTML and JSON files, and the JavaScript to, to run the application. And then it will just spit that out into a static file directory that then you can use on Netlify or, or GitHub pages or Surge or whatever it is. Yeah, that sounds directly analogous to what Nuxt and Next can do, right? So they can they can work kind of like as a dynamic web app where they handle the routes as they come in, or you can just pre-generate everything. And that's that's really sweet. I was going to say that the main difference with those frameworks, and they do share a lot of inspiration, they share a lot of DNA. The main difference is that you will end up with much less JavaScript when you mm. first load the page, like a lot less. The, the hello world is like 90% smaller, for example, just because it's built with Svelte and not React or Vue. Yeah, and I, I, and I, mean, I can't stress enough, just going through the tutorial is so much fun just to see how simple and clean the syntax is. Yeah, I, I, I haven't built anything in it yet. It, it'll happen. I had a Gatsby project about six months ago, and it was fun. But yeah, you, you get really deep into something, and you learn its warts. And I'm sure there are some warts with Svelte, but man, the, the syntax is pretty. It's fun, and I love the way that everything works on that site. I agree with you, Patrick. The yeah. tutorial, hats off to whoever worked on that, because that's pretty fantastic. And then you've got a REPL up there where you can just put any arbitrary code in there and, and yeah. see exactly what's going to end up happening. Like, Which is so useful really... for getting bug reports. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, they can just reproduce it in that little isolated test case, right? And then just send it off to you. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So where are we with Sapper? Is it is it shipping or is it not quite shipping for uh, Svelte 3? It, it's shipping. We, we launched a, a Svelte 3 compatible version about a month ago. Mm. But the, the project itself is still, we, we haven't put a 1.0 pin on it yet. There's still a few things that might change before we can say, this is stable and the API is unlikely to change from, from here on out for the foreseeable future. So I'm glad you're actually putting a 1.0 on it. You're not being mealy-mouthed about it and calling it like 0. 
zero one five, and that'll be your actual public release. It's such a millennial, yeah. Zero dot. Oh, yeah. Well, what one point will be the the stable release at which we say it's now ready for for general use. At the moment, it's zero point two six. I I think. Right, <laughs> and that's okay when it's in pre-release, but. When you're actually shipping this thing, like, come on, call it a 1.0, you know? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like, Svelte started out on a version 1.0 because the, the initial private experimentation made me feel that, you know, we were pretty confident that we'd more or less figured out this problem space and it was ready for production use in its, in its current form. And the API wasn't going to change too much. And it didn't until version 2 changed a little bit. And then version 3 was this sort of big sweeping rethink of the whole authoring experience. But SAP is a different beast. Right. There's a lot more moving parts. There's a lot more decisions that need to be taken. And frankly, just a lot more lessons that we need to learn before we can comfortably say it's ready. It's really interesting. There's a, a life lesson in terms of juggling tasks. That is that time management is not the key uh, to actually being able to get stuff done. It's having fewer things on your to-do list. Right. Yeah. And it's focus that, management. Well, and that philosophy it seems like Svelte is carrying it because you, in one of your presentations, you said the only reliable way to speed up code is to get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same principle, I think, you know, in terms of, look, it's all well and good if you want to optimize your time management and or optimize your code as much as you possibly can. But the real gains are going to be by just tearing stuff out. Yeah. It's nice to just have as few decisions to make as possible. But if that is in the context of an application framework, that means having certain opinions baked in from the start. Uh, an example would be the, the way that the file structure of your project maps to the routing structure of the application. But if, if you're going to have these opinions, they've, they've got to be the right opinions. And sometimes the opinions that you think are the right ones turn out to not be. And so that's why we're being a little bit sort of gingerly and, and, uh, and cautious in, in how we go about developing SAPA. Well, I understand because my wife tells me that my opinions are all wrong anyway. So. <laughs> but, I, but I think some of the concepts that are in Svelte, I mean, it, it really seems like if Svelte is not the thing that takes off, like something that does this should because they, it, it just sounds like a, an absolutely natural and fantastic way for something like this to work. Like, why am I loading this framework that, you know, is going to change constantly? Like, why am I not just building what I need? To be fair, I, I think that kind of is happening now. There are a few frameworks that are sort of compiler-centric. Stencil is, is one example. Um, Stencil is <laughs> actually part of the reason that we dropped the magical disappearing framework tagline is that, that they sort of co-opted it. I forget oh, what it is exactly, but, but it's also something magical. And so we need to differentiate ourselves from that. So that is the framework from the Ionic team. Uh, and it, it comes with a compiler that turns your JSXE type custom elements into something more optimized. Glimmer from the Ember team is a framework that compiles your components, your handlebars templates into this binary bytecode. And then you, you load that directly as an array buffer and then... It, run it through a virtual machine, which uh, which turns it into which turns it into DOM. Vue is in the process of exploring what uh, a Vue compiler would look like for version three, and Angular really? is Angular has, has had this ahead of time compilation for for a while, which was not exactly the same as what Svelte was doing. It was mi mi it was more sort of creating an intermediate representation, but they are working on a, a compiler called 
Ivy, which is a lot more complete and and um, it, it, you know it's, it's a lot more of a pure expression of the idea of compiling your your view code. So I kind of feel like the idea of running a compiler on your application code, and not just in the in the way that you'd use something like Babel, but a compiler that is sort of understands the structure of your application in this kind of rich semantic way. It's it's kind of one, right? This is how we build frameworks now. The one outlier, the one sort of odd, odd one out is React, which... The biggest one. The, the, the biggest one. Uh, and the one that is going to have the hardest time adopting some of these ideas. Mm, interesting. Well, I had honestly never heard of Stencil.js before. I looked it up. Their marketing tagline is, you're right, it's pretty close. The magical reusable web component compiler. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I mean it is it is kind of close. It almost um, sounds like a like a 40s jingle. It's just waiting to be, you know. What I what I want to know is how many frameworks exist that I've never heard of. Like that's kind of scary. Did any anyone else here had you heard of Stencil before? I haven't, but I hadn't heard of Flutter a couple weeks ago. I'm learning things every week on this podcast. It's just amazing. It's amazing. View, but I don't think many of those others. <laughs> well, Marion, you don't get any points for having heard of React and View. <laughs> if you hadn't heard of those, like I, I don't know, I don't know what to wandered tell you. into the wrong podcast. Yeah, you want you definitely wandered into the wrong. <laughs> when are we talking about gardening? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but okay, so some other really cool stuff that I saw in Svelte is that apparently accessibility is something that you're building into the actual framework like tell me tell me about that so one of the first things we realized was that as a compiler we can really go to town with error messages like really good error messages that actually help you fix the thing that that is broken as opposed to being something that's a a little bit more inscrutable and that's because you know as a a compiler you don't need to worry about the, the code that prints those errors accidentally ending up in someone's production application right there's just no chance of that happening and so we took a leaf out of elm's book and try to make the error messages really helpful. For example, if you mistype something, then it can use fuzzy matching to say, oh, did you mean this instead? And having done that, I I can't remember exactly at what point uh, we realized this, but it sort of occurred to us that we could do the same thing with accessibility warnings. Not all of them, because a lot of accessibility issues aren't detectable at compile time. But the ones that are, like if you have an image without an alt attribute, for example, it's trivial to detect that. And I don't take too much credit for it because this already exists in the form of an ESLint plugin for JSX. But what Svelte has done is it's taken those ideas and, in fact, some of those exact tests from that ESLint project and baked them into the compiler so that you you can't ignore them. You can't have a Svelte installation that is not accessibility aware. Is it a hard error? Will it refuse no, to compile if certain no, things aren't complied? It's just a warning. Um, the, the way that we sort of jokingly phrase it is that it will allow you to write inaccessible code, but it won't respect you for it. <laughs> <laughs> that was glared disapprovingly. Because, you know, sometimes you really do need to use the autofocus property on, on an input element. And it, would, it right. would suck if, you know, you're trying to fix something late on a Friday <laughs> night and the compiler was like, ah, computer says no. So, you know, we have this we have this set of warnings and my own personal experience has been that I'm better at accessibility more generally now because I'm just more aware of right. what the issues are because it, it's sort of forefront in, in my mind in a way that it wasn't before. And I think that's what 
what our tooling needs is, is just to, to keep that sort of consideration front and foremost, because most of us working in this space, we don't have visual impairments. You know, a lot of us don't have, you know, impaired motor skills and all the other things that make it really difficult for a, a lot of people to use the web and tooling can, can really change the, the equation there, I think. Yeah, we, I'm familiar with a tool called Pally. Uh, which the the L's are eyes, right? The old accessibility uh, yeah. uh, eleven thing in there. But Pally is a tool that's kind of like that. You can run it as part of your build process. It's a CLI tool, and it'll just give you this kind of report in terms of the accessibility. But I thought that was really clever that you built the accessibility right into the framework itself. And you know, maybe there would be certain types of projects where it would, if it's customizable, where it could be a hard error. That if certain things aren't adhered to, like, you know, maybe you're a government agency and you have to adhere to the WCAG standards and yeah. you can just throw a hard error and be like, no, not compiling. Sorry, buddy. I mean, you could even do that in, in userland already. You can, when you invoke the compiler, you can pass a custom on warn handler, which takes oh, nice. the warning as a first argument and the default handler as the second argument. So you can take that warning, do, you know, warning.code contains yeah. Ali. Uh, it, you know, if it does, then throw an error. If not, pass the warning to the default handler. So That's yeah, you, you could definitely do that sort of thing. Yeah, so if, if some kind of a rule isn't adhered to, you can just seg fault and tell them to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So another part of Svelte is that animation is built into it. I guess this makes like when, when I first saw this, I thought it was a little strange, but I'm like, oh, wait a minute. He comes from the data viz world. Of course, animations are built into it. Tell me what what Svelte does for you in terms of animation. There's a few different things. Um, Firstly, it has this concept of element transitions. If you have an element that is being added to the DOM or removed from the DOM, right, because it's in a conditional block or something like that, then you can add a transition directive. Directives are just like special attributes. And that will cause Svelte to run a transition on it when it first gets rendered. And when it's being removed from the DOM, it will actually wait until the transition has been completed before before yanking it out of the DOM, which means that you can have, for example, like say you have an offline notification. You have a little banner that pops in from the top of the screen. Maybe it can pop back out again, and it can do that in a, in a very smooth, animated way instead of just sort of appearing and then vanishing without saying anything. And that, I think, is pretty crucial for helping user understand what is happening inside your application. Like the state transitions are they can be a little bit jarring. Like if things just suddenly appear or they suddenly vanish, then sometimes it's a bit disorienting. You're not sure what's happening. And that's- Yeah, because that doesn't happen in the real world. It, exactly, like, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen yeah. in the real world. Like good, yeah. good UI design takes state transitions very seriously. And particularly in the space that I operate in, right, where we're building these interactive applications that need to tell some story. And often these stories are quite complex. We're, we're not- creating an application that people use repeatedly over a long period of time, right? We don't have an opportunity to train them, oh, this is what this means, this is what that means. You need to be able to communicate information very quickly to someone who is you know, maybe not familiar with the topic at hand, and they certainly aren't going to be using this application more than once. So the more that you can do to ease someone's passage through a particular story to help them understand that, oh, this thing over here is now this thing over there. We've just changed our view of it, for example, then the better a time you're going to have. And so from day one, that was something that, that the Svelte project took very seriously. 
Yeah, because if you're writing this in the context of a, a magazine, your bounce rate is super important to people there, right? Like you don't want people just coming in and being confused about what's going on and just blindly clicking off and going somewhere else, right? Yeah, and, and motion is, is just a, a hugely important part of visual communication yeah. generally. Yeah, it gives you so much context. Well, I mean, one of the other things that I think is is really funny is that you say that if any of the uh, the framework makers go out and they tweet something in terms of benchmarks, yeah. that what you what you do is you you take their benchmark and you run Svelte through it and then you retweet it with that result, right? Yeah, I have done that. Yeah, that is. I mean, like if I was in your position, I hundred <laughs> percent would be doing that. Because I think it's, your own heart. I was yeah. say, yeah, that's the old Andrew Welch trick. That is totally what I would be doing. <laughs> You're proud of your site launch? <laughs> Let's put it through Google PageSpeed Insights. Well, but it's important to keep people honest and then also to keep people thinking about performance. And I think it's, I think it's awesome that you do that. And I hope that that is something that gets more attention for Svelte. I mean, is that something that has anyone gotten mad at you or is everyone just like, oh, there's oh, Rich. He's just yeah, messing with us. Definitely got mad at me. Oh, that's good, though. So for, for one thing, if, right, if you market your framework on the basis of performance, then right. there is always going to be a faster framework, right? And so if <laughs> someone will come along and say, well, that, you know, this, this benchmark isn't a fair representation or, or whatever it is. And, you know, it, it's actually true that the, there's a framework called JS Frameworks Benchmark, which is it's sort of like, what, it's, it's one of the bigger benchmarks. It's the one that everyone competes at. And Svelte honestly doesn't perform that well at it. And the reason is that it's not, a particularly real world representation of of the kind of things that you need to do in an application and so we haven't really mm. optimized svelte for that for that framework so people get mad purely on the basis that svelte is according to this benchmark and according to you know whatever other contrived benchmarks are out there that it's not the fastest so how dare we sort of go out there and say oh by the way svelte is a pretty fast framework and actually we we kind of don't really talk about before, we, we try not to talk about performance that much because for us, that's not really the selling point of the framework. The, the, the selling point is that you can build rich applications with, you know, you don't have to worry about style scoping and you, you can use these transitions and animations and all of this stuff. And you can write really concise code, much more concise than, than you get in, in, in the mainstream frameworks in particular. And you can do all that without really having to worry about performance, right? Performance is not going to be the problem if you're building an application with Svelte. But because a lot of developers really do focus on performance, we, we've kind of found ourselves pushed into this corner where we do have to talk about the fact that Svelte has these performance characteristics, which are much better than, for example, React. I did a thing just today, like you were talking about me tweeting out other people's benchmarks. I, I did, in fact, do that today in conversation with someone about performance uh, comparisons between React and Svelte. And the difference is just so stark. Yeah, I saw one of the demos you gave where you were even showing the new and improved asynchronous, or I think you uh, they use another term for it now, but the way that React is handling the rendering of stuff and the difference between the experience of doing that in React and you know where it would start to hang up and be kind of frustrating to the user to Svelte. Like it was it was pretty it was pretty noticeable in terms of how reactive it actually was, you know? Yeah, I, I got in, into a little bit of trouble for, for that demo because a lot of people thought I was saying something that I, I, I wasn't. Like a lot of people thought that I was saying that the new version of React, which is going to have this concurrent mode, which enables these features like suspense and time slicing, that I was saying that it was obsolete or unnecessary or whatever. Um, mm. And actually 
concurrent mode is one of the most exciting things to hit the front end space in quite some time. It's going to enable some really cool stuff. I was making quite a narrow claim, which is that raw DOM performance does matter and React doesn't have it. And concurrent mode is not going to fix that, right? Because whenever we talk about performance, particularly in the context of React, people will come along and say, oh, it doesn't matter about React's performance because concurrent mode is going to fix it. And that is categorically untrue, right? If your React app isn't currently updating at 60 frames per second, then time slicing isn't going to fix that because it, all it can do is spread the work out over a longer period of time. And it will unblock the main thread, but it doesn't mean that you're going to have a nice, slick, responsive user interface if the updates are happening in a sort of choppy fashion. So there are definitely situations where React's new techniques are going to result in better perceived performance. But the claim that I was making was that actually, if you want to improve perceived performance, the best way to do it is to improve performance. Rich, I, I don't want to accuse you of, of, of you know, having a bias toward any particular JavaScript framework, but <laughs> if you are, um, so say you're, you're, you've been doing web development, you've been stuck in, you know, uh, jQuery spaghetti, and you've, you've surfed the mustaches for a while, and you've <laughs> never used uh, oh, a, a JavaScript framework, is there any, uh, is there any reason you wouldn't start or wouldn't want to start with Svelte? I think if you're in that situation, there probably isn't a reason that you wouldn't want to start with Svelte. The reasons that you wouldn't want to start with Svelte are if you're a bit more established and you have certain ways of working or you work in a team that has certain ways of working that differ from the Svelte philosophy. I mentioned our lack of TypeScript earlier. That is, you know, that, that's a real shortcoming that we intend to fix at some point, but, you know, it's not there yet. When React comes out with suspense mode, then... That is going to be a thing that that probably, unless we manage to implement it before then, and you know, we'll we'll try, but there's only so many hours in the day. Then that is a feature that we won't have. We don't have a huge ecosystem of off-the-shelf components that you can use in your application. We don't have as many tutorials out there. We don't have workshops that you can go to. We don't have um, you know the, the cabal of thought leader high priests who can tell you what's wrong with your application. <laughs> you know, you know, there's there's a lot of things that. That we just don't have because we're small and we don't have the resources right. that most other like big frameworks do. Well, you say you don't have certain components. Are you interested in having someone work on an SEO component for Svelte, or is that not something that uh, you've really found a need for in Svelte? Uh, I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm volunteering. What, a, what, what you I'm mean by an SEO component? Something that would handle ensuring that for these web applications that a good baseline of SEO is actually being generated and, and having a nice system of, of fallbacks and defaults and making sure that, you know, open graph tags are being generated, Twitter cards, JSON-LD structured data, like all that kind of fun stuff. Now, that is the kind of thing that would work really well in the context of Sapper. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how you would do that as, uh, as part of the Svelte compiler itself because it has this sort of limited one component at a time view of the world. But but Sapper as a more opinionated and more sort of you know high level project which has a view of your entire application, that is the kind of place where something like that could be extremely valuable. Well that for sure is where I was thinking about doing something like that is I mean, can I can I just get started if I want to start working on it? Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I mean, maybe, you know, drop by the github.com slash svelte.js slash sapper and like raise an issue and we could get chatting about that. Fair enough. I mean, I'm already in the uh, the Discord channel in there and I will get myself on the GitHub too. Sweet. 
Yeah. So Patrick, Matt, Marion, we've been talking to Riz for a while. He's been very, very generous with his time. But do you, any of you have any uh, kind of final questions you want to run by? I'm curious yeah, about how you leverage those JavaScript labels to do things. Good question. Uh, so every component that has one or more reactive declarations or reactive statements, it gets an update function generated for it by the compiler. And inside that update function, we have a series of if statements. The function is passed uh, an object representing the values that have changed since it last ran. And then each statement that you write gets wrapped in an if statement. So let's say, for example, the dollar colon b equals a plus one right. that we had before. That will get turned into if changed dot a, open curly brackets, b equals a plus one, close brackets. And then at the end of that assignment, we throw in a function called invalidate, which looks like invalidate, and then the string b, comma, b. What invalidate does is it tells the component, oh, this value has changed. We need to mark it as dirty and then be aware of that when the next update happens. Now, these are all implementation details that are subject to change. And actually, we've been thinking about implementing a what we call bitmask-based bit change tracking, which would be more minifiable and potentially faster to run. But the, the principle there is, is that it analyzes the set of reactive statements that you've written. It figures out which are the assignments and which are the dependencies of each of those statements. And then it reorders them topologically if necessary and wraps them in these if blocks that check if any of the dependencies have changed before running the statement. And then it just runs that update statement every time there is a state change inside that component. Okay. So whenever in a, in like a, a whenever anything way. changes, you go and look and see if, if uh, A has changed. Yeah, not immediately. It happens at the end of the event loop. But when you do the assignment to A in the first place, the thing that triggers that reactive declaration, it, it again adds that invalidate call. So the component is always aware of which specific values have changed mm. and through that, which other values need to be reevaluated. Okay. And actually what I always tell people who, who have these questions is head over to our REPL environment, svelte.dev slash REPL. And on that page, there is a, a tab called JS output. And if you click on that, then instead of seeing the result of the component that you've written, you will see the code that Svelte has generated. And then if you scroll to the bottom, you'll be able to see the, the update function that it's created. And you'll be able to see those invalidate instrumentations and everything else uh, that makes it the work. The label basically. getting, getting uh, used and so on. So was Svelte yeah. the first time you started using those otherwise underused JavaScript labels? Or I've forgotten now the name of the previous framework. Uh, yeah, we we didn't do anything like that Reactive in Reactive. Didn't use it. Um, no, it, it 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 did a. It basically did. Um, it had this slightly convoluted mechanism of registration where things would get like attached to this object, which would then be exported from the component, and it was it was a little bit awkward. And that awkwardness was one of the main motivations for for doing Svelte three. Like all of the performance stuff, all of the things that people are talking about um, in, in terms of Svelte 3 and its ability to push lots of DOM updates, that was there from the start. The only thing that really has changed in Svelte 3 is 
we've got rid of some of the, the gnarlier aspects of the development experience in favor of code that's slightly nicer to write, hopefully. And speaking of gnarlier experiences, I'm a little bit worried about Matt and his mustache surfing or whatever it is he's doing over there. But Matt, you had, you had something you wanted to say? What? No, I'm not mustache surfing. That was just a no, I have nothing to say, Andrew. But thank you. <laughs> I was just listening to the people talk. Oh, man. Patrick, how about you? You got anything you want to ask Rich before we uh, we let him go drift off silently yeah, into Patrick, the night? Are you mustache surfing? You got anything to say? <laughs> we all experiment in college. Uh, no, oh, no. Um, oh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, this has been a very technical discussion, I think. I would just really urge anyone to go and play with a tutorial. Like, it, it's just... It's so clean and simple, and, and it's what I what I even want Vue to be, just in terms of syntax and able to just jump in and get something up and running. It's really cool to play with. Yeah, no, that that's all. I agree. Go over and twirl the mustache. I, I agree with you. It's, it was really. I'm sorry, <laughs> you started it, Matt, and and Rich, I apologize. <laughs> I gotta, gotta do it. It's usual, um, the last twenty percent of the episode is just going to get cut. So don't worry. <laughs> This is an after hours <laughs> recording of dev mode. Yeah. No, but it I agree. Like it it is very clean. It's very crisp and it it feels nice and it, it feels, feels right. fun. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. It feels really nice. Well, how do you do you it, know? Rich? You're you're at the New York Times, you're building roll up svelte. Like where where do you get this time? I I have a very patient and understanding wife. She sounds like an angel. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah. But, and also, you know, occasionally because I use it for projects at work, I can justify spending a little bit of time at the office. Mm. Like if, if there's a feature that I need for an upcoming project. Good example, we published a thing the other day, which was a story about the US transportation secretary and her ties to the, to the Chinese government. And in there we had this, this WebGL graphic, which was, uh, it was a, a, a 3D globe where we plotted the path that the ships owned by her family's shipping company had, had traveled over, over the last two years since um, Elaine Chow has been in office. And mm. in order to do that, I needed a WebGL framework. And so we now have Svelte GL, which is uh, a, a system cool. for building 3D scenes inside a Svelte document, which I'm quite excited about. Wow. That is pretty sweet. I'm trying to find this. No, I, I agree with. I agree with Patrick's advice. Like, if you are curious at all, just go to uh, spelt.dev. We'll have links in the in the show notes and give the tutorial just a quick run through. It's really fun. It's really engaging. You can just jump in and start playing around with it. And I mean, honestly, I've I've kind of I'm smitten a little bit here, Rich. Like, I, I'm really impressed with the the work that you've done. So hopefully, I will to my be... ears and to all the other contributors' ears. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I, hopefully I will be able to contribute something uh, meaningful at some point uh, in the future. But that about wraps it up for another episode of the devmo.fm podcast. To have every episode delivered to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our RSS or subscribe via iTunes or Google Play. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a review. You can also mustache surf on over to our Twitter <laughs> at devmo.fm. Uh, and we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode and leave us a comment on the devmo.fm website for the Dev mode.fm podcast i'm andrew Welsh. i'm patrick I'm harrington i'm matt stein and thank you so much rich for coming on thank you for having me it's been fun I do a
apologize about Patrick. He has behavioral issues. We, we try to tolerate him, but he, he gets out of line sometimes, you know? That's the way it goes. This episode is brought to you by Burt's Bees Mustache Wax. I'm on this Elaine Chow visual.